0: Now, when you choose to preach through the Bible, there are easier passages than some. This is not one of them. This is a tough passage. I just warn you right up front. It's a very important passage. It's a profound passage. It's one I couldn't have told you a couple of weeks ago what it meant. Uh, I know it's all good. I I read it and that's nice. Uh, But exactly what was happening here and what I was reading, I couldn't have told you. And uh, frankly, neither can the commentators. And uh, so the Holy Spirit is opening to us an important part of Scripture. I want, I want us to see it. I want us to understand it. And then, of course, we want to ask the question, what does it do to us? How do we respond to this? What does it mean for our hearts? Lord Jesus, your word is life to us, every bit of it. And we ask today for the, for the your dear spirit, that you would open our spiritual eyes to see, our ears to hear, and you would give us soft, repentant hearts, that we would follow you and believe We'd be given hearts full of faith, Lord, for we would be strengthened by your word to go forward in, in, in your power, uh, not in fear, not in defeat, but in power and great compassion, Lord, for those who do not know you. We pray for this grace, and I pray for the grace to speak and get out of the way. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, here we go. John chapter 3 uh, John is, if you recall, baptizing at Anon near Salim, which is probably 30, 40 miles north up the Jordan River, almost uh, most of the way up toward the, uh, the Sea of Galilee. And his disciples come to him and they, they say, Master, all of the people are going after Jesus. Uh, and they're frustrated. They want him to somehow stop this thing and, and uh, do something. And his response is, His response is to say, they must go after Jesus. I am the best man in the wedding. He's the groom. I came to announce him. I came to prepare people's hearts so they would believe in him and love him. And then he says that wonderful statement, uh, he must increase, but I must. He must increase, but I must decrease. And then he explains to his disciples why. Jesus must increase. Why? This is about Jesus and not John. And what he says is remarkable. Start at verse 31. I'm going to read down to verse 36. He, speaking of Jesus, John says, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. He, what he has seen And heard of that, he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not, notice the word change, obey the Son, will not see life. But the wrath of God abides upon him. Lord God, open the word. Here we go. Many of the truths Jesus taught can be found in the Old Testament. He explained and applied them brilliantly. But when he taught those truths, he wasn't revealing anything new. Just showing us what Moses and the prophets really meant. So there's lots that Jesus taught that are not new information. He is taking things and and making them real and clarifying and cutting away nonsense and all of that. But he's not coming up with new ideas. But there were a few select truths which he taught that were absolutely fresh revelation. They were in fact truths that he brought with him. Listen to this. They were truths he brought with him from heaven. Of course, there are glimpses of these truths all the way through the Old Testament so that if a reader truly understood what they were reading, they would discover many prophecies that point directly to Jesus. That's why after Jesus came to earth and did all that he did, we can look back and without stretching or forcing anything, see one passage after another that was trying to tell us about Jesus. Yet until he came, they remained hidden from the human mind shrouded in mystery and those few select truths that jesus brought with him from heaven had to do with jesus himself who he is and why he came these were the central truths that he spoke clearly and often and they were the statements that got him in trouble jesus wasn't like other rabbis who were teaching people how to obey the law of moses nor did he try to introduce a new set of religious laws he asked people to believe what he said about himself. Are you following this? Yeah. This, is, this is why, you know, he's not just another rabbi. You know, you'll hear people trying to, trying to dumb it down to that. And then that somebody just turned him in. No, he's not. You, if you want to blame anybody, you blame him. But Jesus absolutely taught about himself. And then we're going to look at those key, central, uh, wonderful things that he brought. John says he brought from heaven And those words form the foundation stones of true Christianity. They are truths we must believe. Some students of the Bible assume that verses 31 through 36 were observations made by the apostle, the apostle John, the one who wrote the book, not the John the Baptist. In order to explain John the Baptist's testimony about Christ, rather than them being a continuation of the prophet's own words. But the apostle John does not indicate in any way that there is a change in speaker. So there's no reason to doubt that John the Baptist spoke them. Throughout the gospel, this gospel, the apostle consistently indicates who's speaking. The dec- so what I, sh- I want you to see today that John, John the Baptist spoke these words. In fact, I want to argue today that he, he almost in a sense uniquely could speak them. He has, there's a lot more to this than we realize. Verse 31, the declaration that John the Baptist speaks in this this verse shows us that he knew that Jesus' spirit had pre-existed his human birth. Earlier, while still at Bethany beyond the Jordan, John made an astounding announcement. As Jesus walked by, he pointed at him and called him what? The Lamb of God. And then he said of him, After me comes a man who is higher in rank than I, for he what? Existed before me. me. John the Baptist and Jesus were cousins. You knew that, right? And John was six months older than Jesus. How do I know that? In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel came to Mary. In what sixth month? Elizabeth's pregnancy. There's no question. John the Baptist, his cousin, is six months older. Do you think John knew he was six months older than his cousin? John was six months older than Jesus, so he could not have said Jesus existed before he did unless he believed that Jesus lived in heaven before becoming a man. When discussing the relationship between these two men, we should recognize that their mothers were extremely close friends and that John's mother, Elizabeth, must have heard Mary's report of the announcement made to her by the angel Gabriel. Elizabeth is Mary's safe place. When she is pregnant out of wedlock, everyone is going to suspect either Joseph or something, someone else. She's in tremendous trouble in Nazareth. She's pregnant. Where does she go? She goes to John the Baptist's mother's. That's her family who she can trust. That's the woman who's spiritual enough that when she says, Elizabeth, I did not do anything, I am a virgin, and yet an angel came to me. Elizabeth has the faith to believe. There's a lot of people you wouldn't go to and try to tell that. Right? And yet, how would Elizabeth even know? Mary arrives at the outer gate, calls in, Elizabeth! And what happens? It says the child in her womb leapt with joy. Who was in her womb? He's been witnessing, John the Baptist has been witnessing to Jesus since he was in the womb. He leaped with joy. The spirit comes on Elizabeth and she prophesies. So does she know that Mary is of the Lord? Yes, she does. Has a clear witness to it. So when Mary comes to her and says, Elizabeth, an angel, Gabriel, came to me. Here's what he said. And the spirit came over me and I became pregnant. And I bear in me a a child that God has conceived. And, and, and Elizabeth, this, do, you, do you think Elizabeth would tell her children, her son? I don't know that she has anymore. She's really old. But will Zach, Zacharias and Elizabeth, will they tell John? Why would they not? Why would they not? Why would they not say, son, the Messiah's here. He's come already. We know this. You bet they would. He knows these things. You've got to to fill in who this man is. He's not one-dimensional. This John the Baptist has all of this history. There is no reason to think that John would not have been told some or all of this information by his parents. With that in mind, it is no surprise to hear John speak of Jesus as he who comes from heaven. His mother told him, if nothing else, or a few verses later describe him as the son of God. That's exactly what the angel Gabriel said. John the Baptist's declaration that Jesus existed in heaven before becoming a man may also reflect his understanding of such prophecies as Micah 5.2. Look at this one. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrata. Ephrata is, means fruitful, the fruitful Bethlehem, because there's other Bethlehems. This is the Bethlehem that's fruitful. We have a town in eastern Washington named Ephrata, don't we? It means, it's named after this. It means fruitful. So Bethlehem Ephrathah, uh, too little to be among the clans of Judah. In other words, an insignificant little village. From you, one will go forth from me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of what? Eternity, holam. And the word means far distant past, way beyond what anyone can know. From way back in the past, or it can be used way into the future. His goings forth are from long ago. It's talking about Messiah. Having just said that Jesus must increase and he must decrease, John the Baptist now tells us why. First, Jesus is superior to all other human beings because his spirit existed in heaven before he was born. Every other human being begins at the moment of conception, but Jesus' spirit is divine and came from heaven to join the human race. For that reason, he is above all other humans in his nature. And his teaching is superior to that of every other human teacher. Normal humans come from the earth. So our knowledge is limited to these things revealed to us here on earth. But the one who comes from out of heaven, literally out of heaven, is able to bear witness to the things that he saw and heard before coming to earth. This interesting statement. Implies that even after becoming a man, Jesus still retained memories of things he heard and saw in heaven. Do you notice that? Your spirit's your spirit, your spirit. I don't know that you can shut it off. He didn't obey. He didn't allow his spirit to rule. Uh, I mean, to do things that, that were the Holy Spirit did not lead him to do. He restricted himself to being a man. He only functioned as a man, and yet, how do, you can't turn your spirit off. You I mean it is you, and so he. I, John implies there were; he still had memories. Nicodemus, Jesus told Nicodemus this same truth earlier. Yet John the Baptist adds, no one receives his witness. At first glance, this statement seems to be an exaggeration because many people did come to Jesus. And even some believed in him. That might lead us to assume that John said no one because only a small percentage of the total population responded. But there was indeed a particular truth at the very center of Jesus' teaching, which not even his disciples understood or accepted until after he had been resurrected from the dead. That truth was the testimony that he, the Messiah, must die for the sins of the world and be resurrected before returning to earth to set up his glorious kingdom. Jesus revealed this mystery many times during his ministry. Yet no one accepted his witness with the possible exception, and I have to be fair here, of Mary of Bethany. Why do I say that? What did Mary of Bethany do? Remember what she did? She went, as he is, as he's in, staying, they stayed in their home, their home was a safe place for him, and they lived, it's two miles uh, from Jerusalem, uh, there from the the temple walls, uh, in in just a hill over, over the Mount of Olives. And so he's staying there and as he's on his way to the passion, as he's on his way to the cross, she does what? She takes a, a, a vial of alabaster, breaks the neck of the thing. It's a it's family heirloom. It's about $10,000. It's a pound of this incredibly uh, expensive perfume. Snaps the neck and pours it over him. What it, and what, is she, what does Jesus say she was doing? Anointing him for his burial. It was a profound prophetic act that oil would that the smell of that a pound of that stuff all over you would not come off uh, would not come off he very likely bore it to the cross I mean this woman ministered to him and because Mary was the one who sat at his feet and listened to him (laughs) go figure Uh, everybody else is busy but she actually listened to what he said And believed him. So I have to be fair to her. She does appear to have received the fact. When he said I'm going to die. She believed it. And for a brief time. John the Baptist says right here. That he himself believed. If this truth about the Messiah dying and rising. Is what John meant when he said no one receives his Jesus testimony. Then he is revealing to us that Jesus literally brought this truth with him from heaven. Surely it was confirmed to Jesus when he read and listened to the scriptures. But John's declaration tells us that Jesus knew the price he must pay for our salvation even before he came to the earth. I have at home a a picture I really cherish. It's a a pen and ink by William Blake. Um, Blake, what was he, back in the 1800s or... or, um, but he was a, 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 he was a writer, but he was also a religious artist. And he, he'd do these pen and inks and then he'd, water, he'd paint them, color them in some of them. And this one is a picture of the Father seated on a throne in heaven. And Jesus is standing in front of him, a little just below, and reach, reaching, up, like, reaching out like this. And the Father has put his arms around him and has buried his head in his shoulder. And all you see is the top of the father's head. And Jesus is is standing there like this with the father's head buried into his shoulder. And then Lucifer, the angel with the spear, is waiting down below. And what it is, is a picture of Jesus presenting himself to the father to go and be our sacrifice. And it shows the grief of the father. That he's giving his son to the horror that he's sending him to. It's a profound picture. He knew what would happen to him when he left heaven. This is a mystery from heaven, this understanding. This insight helps us understand how John was able to make the declaration, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How is it possible that he was able to speak these words at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry? The answer must be that Jesus taught this truth when he came to the Jordan River to be baptized. But then as time passed, it appears that even John... Began to doubt this revelation. You remember that. No sooner does John declare that no one receives his witness than he adds these words The one who receives his witness has set his seal. And to set your seal on something is to publicly put a seal on it, announcing that you agree or approve in an open, public way. Do you see the contrast there? Look at the last of verse 32. No one receives his testimony. And then the beginning of verse 33, he who has received his testimony has set his seal to this. What do you mean? You just said no one. And then you say the one who has, I believe John is saying no one, but I did no one, but I did. And I announced it publicly. I set my seal to the testimony that he brought. Who was that unique individual who unlike everyone else received jesus heavenly revelation and publicly declared it to be true john doesn't say but the only possible answer is john the baptist himself because he did receive from the father and the son revelations concerning jesus and then he publicly announced what he saw and heard if we think back to the events that took place during jesus baptism and remember the words John spoke when he saw Jesus after he'd returned from 40 days fasting in the Judean wilderness. We will see that the statements John makes here in verses 33 through 35 seem to refer to those revelations he received at Jesus' baptism. Bear with me, one more, here we go. John did indeed set his seal to, this, to the mystery that the Messiah would die and be resurrected by publicly identifying Jesus as the Lamb of God. In that Jewish setting, The term lamb of God could have only meant a sacrificial lamb. And in particular, the Passover lamb. When you, when one Jew calls another Jew, a lamb of God, he means you're a dead man. You're going to die. You're going to, you're dying as a sacrifice. And then after making the announcement, John also publicly declared two additional truths about Jesus, which he had described when he baptized him. First, he said, he saw the Holy Spirit descend and remain on Jesus. And God, that God had previously told him to watch for that sign. Because the person would be the Messiah who baptizes people in the Holy Spirit. Which is another way of saying, gives the Spirit without measure. In the next chapter, Jesus will be sitting by a well. A woman will come to him and she'll say, he'll say, give me a drink. She'll say, I don't have, you know, why do you ask me? He says, if you knew who you spoke to, you'd ask of him. And he would give you living water. And you would have a well within of living water. Remember this? What's this? The Holy Spirit without measure. In in, in a few more chapters, he'll say, "Out of your innermost being will flow rivers." You can't drink a river. At least, don't try. You can't drink a river. In other words, unlimited. He gives the Holy Spirit. John says, "I saw the Spirit come on him," and that's the Messiah. He is the source. What do we call him? The Baptizer in the Holy Spirit. It is through Jesus that that wonderful baptism is brought. The Messiah came so we could have the spirit without measure. Second, during that same baptism, John also heard a voice from heaven, which said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And he publicly set his seal to that truth as well when he declared, I myself have seen and have testified that this is the son of God. Said that in John chapter one, this same memory of the Father's voice from heaven seems to be behind his statement here in verse 35. The Father loves the Son, the Son, and has given all things into his hand. So when Jesus' disciples, pardon me, John's disciples came to him to complain that people had left to follow after Jesus, John reminded them of earlier statements he'd made about Jesus. He said, Jesus was sent from heaven by God. So the truths he taught were the very words of God. He said, Jesus was the Messiah so that he was the one who would give God's people the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And he said, Jesus was the divine son to whom the father had given all authority. Does that start to make sense? Yes, it's a powerful passage. All right, let's begin to see what he's taught us now. Five truths we must believe. I I think these are the truths that are the central core of Christianity. And you'll notice they're all controversial. We, of course, wouldn't, if you were the devil, wouldn't you attack these? First of all, the Messiah is more than a human descendant from the family of David. He is exceptional because his spirit is the divine son of God. That means he existed in spirit in heaven before becoming a man. If you agree with that, would you say amen? Amen. Yeah. Is that, is that point argued over? Is there controversy? Oh boy, is there ever. That, that's what whole religions attack, whole cults have been formed, whole Bibles have been translated to try to, to, to rid, to rinse the Bible of those clear statements. That is the unique Christian confession. You cannot get away from that one. God hath begotten a son and sent him to die for us. That is the essential core of our faith. So, of course, it's what's attacked People will come up with every other sort of explanation. John says that came from heaven. Number two, God ordained that this miraculous Messiah must first come to earth and to suffer and die as a substitute to atone for the sins of all humans before coming in power to bring the promised blessings of God's kingdom. No one, no one in, 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 in Old Testament history could put the pieces together. You could see the passages that talk about a suffering Messiah or a suffering somebody, the servant of God. And, and you think, who's that? And then you see these glorious promises of setting up a kingdom and gathering the nation, Israel back into its land and restoring its, the, the land and all of those things. And you think, what's this? When we go to Israel, one of the things in, in a place we go to is called Qumran. It was a, it was a, a village of kind of hermit-like people who went out into the, into the desert to copy scriptures and wait for Messiah. And uh, they wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls, or they, they, and they stored them in those caves. That's where we get our Dead Sea Scrolls. One of the interesting things, they really studied the Bible very, very intensely. And so here's their conclusion. There must be two Messiahs. Because they, they saw, it's there. I mean, I'm not, this is absolutely what they thought. There's, a, there's this Messiah who will come and suffer and, and die. And there's this Messiah who will come and gloriously bring the kingdom. So there must be two. They couldn't, they didn't know how to put them together. But they at least saw the two. Jesus comes and he says, I've come to die first. Because if I came in glory, I'd have to judge you all. So I have to come and I have to die and atone so that God's mercy can flow. And then I will come and set up my kingdom. But not, after, not until after I have harvested the earth as much as I can and got every soul to repent as possible till my father's house is full of people who are his sons and daughters. Isn't that beautiful? That's his, the revelation. Number three his body would be dead for 3 days and then God would raise him back to life. Read this quote with me, would you? For from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised up on the 3rd day. After he had number 4. After he had conquered death and sin, God the Father would give the Messiah all authority to rule over his creation and set up a righteous government on earth. He, what was Jesus' statement? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. For the Father has promised me them. They're mine now. I have all authority. Go. All of this is reflecting exactly these truths. Number five. The promised outpouring and indwelling of the Holy Spirit would come to humans through the resurrected Messiah. That's why Pentecost didn't happen until after the cross and resurrection. His sacrifice on the cross would make it possible for the Holy Spirit to dwell inside the human body. Did you follow that? He had to die not only for your sins, but to atone the, 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 the filth, frankly. Of of a of our human bodies, which have done all kinds of wicked things, the spirit of God can't live in these bodies until Christ has atoned them. And so He died not only for your sin, but He died to atone your body, so that the spirit of God might dwell within us and empower us to live as sons and daughters of the Living God. Hallelujah! Do you believe that? Those are unique Christian revelations Jesus brings. Jesus clarifies truth from heaven. In explaining explaining to his disciples why they must rejoice that people were believing in Jesus, John the Baptist told them an amazing fact. He said Jesus lived in heaven before he was born. And that he brought with him these truths which no human had ever fully understood. They were revelations about Jesus himself which he had heard and seen in heaven and then taught to us. He literally said Jesus witnessed these truths. And then added that no one believed him. No one that is except John himself and he said he did receive the truth that Jesus witnessed and had said so publicly in particular it must have been a huge step of faith for john to confess that jesus who by that time he knew for certain was the messiah would die but that's what he meant when he called him the lamb of god let's try to summarize these verses so we can understand what john told his disciples verse 31 john came from heaven pardon me jesus came from heaven so that his teaching is superior to all other human teachers. Do you realize the implications of that? Jesus. You don't don't judge Jesus' teachings by anything else. You judge all other teachings by his. Not everybody's doing that. Not everybody's doing that. Some people would put Moses superior. No, he's not. It all The superior teacher of all, because he comes from heaven and he brings that is Jesus himself. Number 32. They aren't in conflict, by the way, if you understand them properly. His testimony about himself contains revelations he brought with him from heaven. Verse 33. John the Baptist heard Jesus' testimony and was the only one who believed him. John reminded his disciples that he publicly declared his faith in Jesus. Verse 34. John said, he knew Jesus was the Messiah when he saw the Holy Spirit come upon him and that the scripture said the Messiah would baptize God's people with the Holy Spirit. That was important to John. Verse 35, when, the, when he baptized Jesus, John audibly heard the father's voice say Jesus was his beloved son. And I think John almost certainly knew about the circumstances surrounding Jesus' miraculous birth. And he knew that it would, and he knew that it had been prophesied that the father would give his son authority over all the earth. One of the passages that I would take you to is Psalm 2 that we read earlier. Is, is that true? Absolutely a clear prophecy. John, now we come to the, to the real heart of things in verse 36. That is one verse. Let's, in fact, let's read it once more. Just listen to it again. I would close my Bible just before I read it. That's my life. Verse 36. He who believes in this, why don't you read it with me? He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. John's challenge. After declaring these truths that we've just seen, John challenged his own disciples that they too must believe because whenever, wherever the, the, the testimony about Jesus is given, people's hearts are tested. Those who believe in Jesus with the kind of faith that submits to him and chooses to obey his commands, notice, not just, not just head knowledge, not just some kind of mental assent, but the kind of faith that bows its knee, sees who he is, and bows its knee and surrenders to him as disciple, are immediately, notice this, immediately placed into a life-giving relationship with God. Those that refuse to become his disciples prove that they are already separated from God. And if they don't repent, life here on earth is a foretaste of the loneliness and misery they will experience after they die. Eternal life. With this one statement, John declared salvation by grace as clearly as Paul. He said, the one who believes in, literally into the son Has eternal life. Notice John didn't say the one who believes. Will have eternal life. He said that person has it now. The moment a person believes in Jesus. Eternal life begins. Because eternal life results from being reconnected to God. Not living in a place called heaven. You and I were designed to live in the presence of the, the, uh, the powerful presence of the Holy Spirit. When Adam and Eve sinned, that, 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 that presence removed, and we began to die. You recall it says that Adam and Eve, when, when they sinned, knew they were naked. Does that statement ever bother you? Like, how did you not know that? You know, come on, I mean, take a look. I think, they, I think there was something changed. I think prior to, that, to, the, to their sin, I think they, they shone with the light of God. I think there was a, the glory of the Lord shone on them. And then when they sinned, it was gone. And it was just two bare bodies. Ugh. Standing there because the glory had left. When you and I are resurrected, we're headed right back to that glory, the day will come when you will shine like the sun. You see God's ways, he never has a plan B. How could he? He's perfect. So when he orders something, when he says, this is what I want, I want you like this. And then I want a relationship with you where you and I walk together and talk. I want this kind of thing. He, he has had to take another way around to get his original plan. In fact, the only thing he can do is make it better. So now we're in a resurrected state in a glorious city. But you will shine with the glory. You and I will, are, are, are being is immersed again in that powerful Shekinah glory of God. When you and I believe, the barrier of sin is gone. And the spirit is given to us now again. So it starts now. Not then. And when I die, I just step across and the body falls off. But I'm already connected. Eternities has started now in my life and yours. The moment a person believes in Jesus, eternal life begins because eternal life results from being reconnected to God, not living in a place called heaven. Yes, we have a glorious future waiting for us, but those joys aren't the essence of eternal life. That life is the life that constantly flows from God. It's the life that we were designed at creation to survive on. The, once the barrier of sin is taken away from our spirit, our spirit is able to, our spirit is able to freely fellowship again with God. You know there were two trees in the garden, weren't there? One was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Who's going to decide what's good and who's going to decide with evil? God and leave leave the fruit on the tree, pick it, and eat it. You'll decide. But there was another tree. What was it? Tree of life. And they were not forbidden to eat from that, were they? Not at all. In fact, they were driven out afterwards so they couldn't. So they couldn't. What will be in, what will be in that glorious city, says John, when we get there in that, that beautiful place? There'll be trees of life all up and down the, the, the side of the river. I mean, we're going to have tons of... It's, it's him. It's reconnected to him. It's being with him. We will not die. We will not die. We're going to be just saturated with the glory of God. We can't die in all of that. When we die, our body with all its limitations, passions, and weaknesses will fall away. And our spirit will enjoy uninterrupted fellowship with God. But the intimacy of that fellowship doesn't need to wait until we step across. John says, it begins now. Saving faith. John's statement doesn't stop with believers receiving eternal life. He continues on with a warning to those who choose to reject Jesus. He said, but the one who disobeys the son will not see life. But the wrath of God remain, notice, remains upon him. It's significant that John changed a key word in the second half of this statement. He didn't warn those who do not believe in Jesus, notice, but those who do not obey him. Unbelief can be the result of ignorance, but disobedience is an informed choice. He's not talking about those who've never heard. He's talking about those who have. Those who've encountered Jesus, either through meeting him, through hearing the gospel and understanding it, through encountering him by the power of of, of the spirit in a believer, how do they react? How do they respond? Those who choose to believe believe, Eternal life starts right now. Those who choose to, notice, disobey. No, you're not going to be my Lord, who walk away. They remain in the condition separated from God and have actually made it worse. Unbelief can be the result of ignorance. But disobedience is an informed choice. This careful choice of words indicates that he is not talking here about people who have never heard of Jesus. He's talking about those who have encountered him in one way or another. Those who understood who he is, but then refused to follow him as his disciple. This means that the, ki- the kind of faith that brings eternal life is not merely an intellectual assent to a particular doctrine. About Jesus, But a deep decision to believe in Jesus and obey his commands. Lots of people can get taught. You can go to church. You can grow up in church. Know all this stuff. You can, you can recite all kinds of things and know it in your head. That is not saving faith. That is intellectual assent and it will not save you. What saves us is the faith where we see him and we bow our knee. When well, we follow him, we put our hand in his and say, you're my Lord and my Savior. I will be your disciple. That is eternal life. That's where the miracle takes place. The wrath of God. Now, don't get angry at me. I'm not grumpy today. It's, it's in there. See it? I didn't write this book. You knew that. The wrath of God. John says that the person who does not obey the son will not see life which means they will not gain that restored relationship with God, which produces eternal life. In fact, that person will not even understand eternal life when they see it at work in others. Again, we must keep in mind that he was talking about those who willfully reject the son, not those who are ignorant of who he is or the salvation he brought to us. Just as those who believe in Jesus immediately begin to experience eternal life, Those who reject him are already experiencing what it means to be separated from God in their hearts. It's impossible and always will be to live anywhere apart from God's presence because his spirit fills the entire universe. But it is possible to be immersed in his spirit and yet remain alone, isolated from him in our hearts. That's the darkness that is spoken of. John's words were meant to warn us that this possibility exists and God in his justice will allow us to separate ourselves from him. If we choose to, he calls it the wrath of God because it's horrible in his perfect justice. God will allow humans to live forever separated from him alone with the person we've become. God doesn't hate people. Not anyone, not even the worst sinner in history, but he does hate the evil they do. And he won't let them keep doing it forever, nor will he let them trouble those he loves beyond the grave. He will put a barrier between them. I came to this conclusion as, I, as we went through the book of Revelation a number of years ago. And I came to Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. And it, and it said something that threw me. And it, it says, And heaven and, and, heaven and earth fled from before his face, and there was no place found for them, which means they disintegrate, they disappear. And I said to myself, you know, in other words, the entire universe is evaporated. And I thought, wait a minute, I thought it was fire. Peter said fire, didn't he? And I I went back, and sure enough, he said fire. What is it, 1 Peter 3? And and I'm looking, I said, so which is it? Is it fire, or is it His presence? And then I said, "Yes, I see it. It's both. It is the fire of God's presence." What I believe the Bible says will happen, and you, you do not. If, I have to go with this. But what I believe it says is that God. We'll, there comes a moment when God will release his Shekinah glory, his, his brilliant presence in an unlimited, unrestrained way. Right now it's restrained. When Paul saw the glory of Jesus, that Shekinah glory, what did it do to him? It, it literally fried his eyes. I mean, they oozed and scaled over and he was blinded. He had to be miraculously healed so he could see again. I mean, that's, that's fire, isn't it? It's a powerful fire, but it wasn't combustion. It was Shekinah. Do you see the difference? I believe that the lake of fire, if you will, is going to be people who are, in a sense, cast into the presence of God, that that complete, limited, brilliant fire of God. The Bible says that when Jesus resurrected from the dead, he literally took all humanity with him, the righteous and the unrighteous. You remember this? It's very clear. Jesus says it himself. We'll get to it in John 5, I think. He, he, that the righteous and the unrighteous are, are called into resurrection. Now, the resurrected body that we will have is able to withstand the, 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 the glory of God, that fire of God. We will not be consumed by it or destroyed by it. For us, this is heaven. We are going to be immersed in the presence of God that would literally kill us now. You ever had God's presence kind of come on you? So strong and you go, Lord, anymore and I'm going to die. Well, the day will come, you, know, you don't have to worry about that. The day will come when his presence will just be so strong. It would, it, right now, it would, it would literally take our breath away. It would destroy us. That's our future. For us, it's heaven. For us, it's glory. But I believe that the Lord does not have a barbecue pit where he's going to throw souls and burn them alive forever. I believe the lake of fire is the, that they will be cast, as it were, into that Shekinah glory of God, but as they are. Here's the horror of it all. and Here's what I see. When you die, you die. You, you step across the way you are. If you're in relationship with God, you will be re- here. You'll be in relationship with God there. If you are separated from him here, you will be separated there. Separated into the darkness of, your, of, your, of the bitterness, of the rancor, of the addictions, of the hatreds, of the prejudice, of, the, of the, even the demonic influences because they're there too. Even the demonic influences. So there you are, captured as a sense, with them. And what? notice something. Notice the horrible justice. God has not done anything to you. You have created, choice by choice and step by step, yeah. your own agony. Yes. The justice, that's how we can say it's going to be worse for one and not for the other. Yeah, I will. But boy, the more I see this, now, you, as I say, if you want to believe the fire is the litter fire, I, I, I have no argument with that. That's fine. Um, I just don't think that's what I see. And it is difficult for me to say, on the one hand, God is a great loving God who wants to save, and by the way, he'll also create a fire and burn you alive forever. That's a really hard thing to say. God is a God of love. It is that doctrine, which is not I, was, has been used for centuries to bring kings to their knees, It's a very effective manipulative tool. You can threaten people with that and scare the liver out of them. I think, I think we step across. And I think when he says, the wrath of God remains on them, remains on them. In other words, you're already in that separation, it's already begun. Our spiritual future. John says our spiritual future is already becoming evident. We are either drawing closer to God or pulling away. We are either growing softer to him or harder, more obedient or more rebellious. In both wonderful and terrible ways, eternity has already begun for those who've met Jesus. The future judgment will only announce these realities depending on which was true at the moment of our death. While we're alive, these things can change. Believers can stop believing and unbelievers can start believing. But once we cross over, the decisions of this life become permanent. If we're joined to God here, we'll be joined to God there. If we're separated from him here, we'll be separated from him there forever. That's why what we believe about Jesus matters. And that's why God sent him to save us. You can see eternity beginning now in people's lives. You can watch people as they approach their death. Some ready, some at peace, some full of his love, and some becoming increasingly terrified, increasingly fearful. We're talking about the realities of Jesus Christ. This is a strong lesson today, isn't it? It's a hard one to hear. But what should it do? It should cause compassion to fill us. The more I look at the realities of eternal life. The more it makes me compassionate, makes me long to tell people about Jesus. It makes me, nothing becomes an inconvenience in a sense. I I was asked to pray for some people this week to visit people who were dying and to pray for them. And uh, Mary and I went and and, and, and prayed and led, I'm not sure both didn't know the Lord, but I know that when we were done, they had confessed Christ. And, and then somebody said, oh, I'm sorry, you're so busy. Well, I am busy, but I'm never too busy to tell somebody who's ready to pray about Jesus. You understand? I believe these things. These things aren't, this isn't a job <laughs> not a, for not any of us. And you and I, whatever, wherever you are this coming year, you, you need to be allowing God to use your life to influence others for Jesus Christ. Because these realities are there. Those who believe have eternal life. It's begun already. Those who do not believe, the wrath of God remains upon them. And that's their future. That's why it all matters. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.